Welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. All right, all right, all right. If you want to find your seats, make your way back. Normally, normally on another Sunday, I would have let you go for a lot longer to, uh, to greet one another, but I, have, um, I normally have like six to seven pages of notes, and today I have nine to ten. So um, this is going to be, uh, get your thinking caps on. I, I believe in you all. I know you can do this. We can do this. So um, before we get to this, a couple of things we want to let you know about. First, if you're new, welcome to Awaken. We are so glad that you're here. My name's Micah, one of the pastors. Uh, we'd love to know that you were here, so in the seat pockets in front of you or online on our homepage, you can click the I'm new button um, and uh, let us know that you were here. Uh, somebody from our team will reach out and invite you to a beverage of your choice. We can get to know each other a little bit more. Those cards, if you fill one out today, and any tithes and offerings that you might have can go in the black boxes at each of the exits. We're super grateful for both of those and want to be uh, stewards and responsible for that. On that note, uh, you know, when you give to Awaken, lots of things happen, but this last week, our first deposit, our first gift went to the uh, Salvation Army from our community garden outside. Lots of good things have been grown there. Like, you make that happen, so well done. Well done, thank you. Um, A couple of events we want to let you know about. First, we are recruiting for the fall, uh, for kids' community in particular. That's kind of our largest need, so... Um, We're looking for 30 to 40 or so volunteers when we get back to fall in September. uh, We'll go to two gatherings, most likely. Uh, And we, um, our kids are a huge part of what we do. So um, if you're not involved in that and you've thought about it, uh, we'd love to have you. So uh, you can fill that information out online or you can email mandy at awakenwest7th.com for the time being. Um, And we're... uh, Yeah, keep praying for that transition. Mandy's um, handing the baton to uh, a person yet to be determined. So um, we're we're close. Um, It's not it's not too far off. I pray. I pray. I pray. So um, board games and lawn games we're hosting on uh, August the seventeenth, six thirty to eight thirty. That'll be just fun here at the church uh, for folks that come. You can contact Kathy at awakenwest7th.com if you have questions about that. Uh, There is an event at Adams Elementary in our neighborhood, so our neighborhood school, uh, Spanish Immersion School. The principal reached out to us. They're they're wanting to bless and welcome all their teachers and staff back to school. So on the 29th of August, if you are free on Monday morning from 7.45 to 9.45, we're going to make some pancakes and um, uh, host a breakfast with Rob Solly, who's the principal there, and we need some people. So if you can do that... Um, I think there's information for, yes, Kathy at Awaken West 7th, and um, that would be awesome. And last but not least, save the date, my friends. Yes, the fall retreat is coming. The fall retreat is coming. That's October, September 30th to October 2nd. It is tons and tons of fun. We hope that you can make it. The um, registration for that should be live this week. Um, we're working out the final details of that, so want to make sure you know about it. If you have any questions, you can contact Jenna, all right? You ready for this? Let's do this. All right, Mike, if you would, um, if if you're able, I'll invite you to stand for the reading of the text. This is uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, Paul's letter to the church in Rome. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity 
for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Pray with me. God, as we gather this morning, uh, we ask your Holy Spirit to illuminate what is good and true and right and beautiful. I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you and edifying to your church, Jesus. In the strong name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit, the church said together, amen. You may be seated. Uh, every week, when I sit down to write and study, uh, I have a playlist uh, on Spotify, and this is it, part, one of the songs on it. And every week, when I press play, I, I have this weird experience where I, I sense like this wave of a presence around me and near me, and, and I ask, um, I breathe out, breathe in and breathe out, and say, God, lead me, guide me, and uh, maybe no more than, never have I needed it more than this week, and never have I asked it with a more sincere heart than I did this week, um, as I prepped for what we're going to do in Romans 1. So maybe just together, um, if we could for a moment, a deep breath in and out, Holy Spirit, come, guide us. Lead us. Show us what's true. I pray. Amen. Thanks, Trevor. Um, in case you did not get the memo, we are in a text that is um, not for, um, well, it could be for little ears, but you may not want it to be for little ears. So if, um, um, if you didn't get that message, um, sorry about that. But we're going to talk about um, one of six passages in the Bible that are often called or termed the clobber verses. Uh, two weeks ago, we looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and this week we're going to look at Romans chapter 1. In my opinion, this is the most difficult of the six passages in Scripture. And it's the most important, actually, I would argue. I think the other five can more easily be proven to not be talking about um, committed, monogamous, same-gendered same relationships. Whereas Romans 1 is part of a larger argument that Paul's making. It's part of a narrative. It's part of a, a long conversation he has in Romans. And it is, for many, kind of the closing argument. It's sort of the nail in the coffin that the Bible, you know, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, definitively prohibits same-gendered relationships. Uh, so today, that's what we're going to do. This is in a series called Lost in Translation. We do this in the summer and um, look at difficult passages in Scripture and try to make sense of them. So um, I'm going to allow one question to guide our time together. It's the same question that guided us two weeks ago, and that is this. Does Romans 1, 18 to 32 condemn monogamous same-sex marriage or even gay sex in general? Said differently, um, is gay sexual expression sin always? Uh, a caveat as we begin, uh, the denomination that we're a part of, uh, the Evangelical Covenant Church, the uh, majority and discerned position, uh, or the majority voted on uh, position in the covenant is 
faithfulness in heterosexual marriage and singleness or celibacy in singleness. Uh, these constitute the Christian standard for marriage. So uh, if you'd like more information on the papers that have been written or uh, the resources that are available to uh, sort of support that or uh, tell the story of how the, the denomination got there, uh, you can ask uh, for that. I will help. I would be glad to help you find that. Or you can go to the covchurch.org website, and those are there. Um, I'll also say that my understanding and exegesis of Romans 1 that you're about to hear may at times, if not most, more than often, will be at odds with what some of my colleagues and my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, have written on this topic, on this passage. And I offer it to you this morning as the church humbly, with no pride or arrogance, but, um, but as humbly as I can, and also with recognizing like the gravity of what I'm saying as a pastor, as a teacher. Um, I, I mentioned this two weeks ago, but it's important. Uh, you don't have to agree with me. You, uh, this is the beginning of a conversation at Awaken, this, this pulpit. It's not the end of a conversation. It is not ex cathedra. It is not the Pope or, or any, you know, like, it's the beginning of the conversation. So you don't have to agree with me. And then also, um, your, uh, your place in our community is not at stake based on whether or not you agree with me, okay? So, um, having those caveats been given, I'm... Um, Back to the question, the one question, does Romans 1 condemn monogamous same-sex marriage or uh, gay sex in general? I'm going to argue no, it does not. On three points, the first of which you know, say it with me, context. That's right, friends, context. Uh, The context in which you find two verses, verse 26 and 27, is a part of a larger argument Paul is making. And I think it is vital that you understand what that is. So I'm going to argue that uh, that's there. It doesn't answer all the questions, but it frames the conversation. Secondly, um, Paul's condemnation is, is of a perversion of sex, not gay sex in general. Um, it is connected to a, a larger conversation Paul is in about idolatry and lust and immorality and uh, indulgence. All right, So we'll get there. And then number three, I want to offer as succinctly as I possibly can why I disagree with Paul and his prohibition of gay relationships. Um, that's, that's where we're headed today, all right? Here we go. Number one, context and Paul's lar- larger argument. Um, I've said it a hundred times. I'm going to say it again. You can't cherry-pick verses in the Bible and remove them from their context to make them say what you want them to say. That is irresponsible, it's dangerous, and people get hurt when we do it. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna argue, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna argue for uh, us not doing that. Uh, Romans 1, 26 and 27, the two verses that do have to do anything with same-sex relationships are a part of a larger context, and as we'll soon find out, has way more to do with idolatry and lust, uh, with uncontrolled passion and and a a view of that in the ancient world than it does same-gendered sexual relationships. Um, Paul. Paul was a Jewish Christian convert who was a missionary to the Gentiles in the Roman Empire. And so what we know about some of these uh, churches and places that Paul was a missionary to was that there was bound to be and there was conflict among those churches about what about the Gentiles and what is required of the Gentiles. Uh, What does worship look like outside of the temple and outside of the Jewish liturgy and calendar? Do we celebrate sacred feasts and holidays or do we not, right? There was bound to be and there was conflict. We know that in AD 49, there was a Roman emperor named uh, uh, Claudius who banned Jews from the city of Rome. So from A.D. 49 to A.D. 54, uh, uh, there was a ban of of Jews in the city of Rome. Uh, This is a quote from a guy named Suetonius uh, in a book called Lives of the Caesars. He said, because they were constantly rioting and at the instigation of Crestus, or Christ. So Christians were sort of causing an uproar in the city, and they... Jews were banned from the city. 
So imagine if half of this church was banned from St. Paul and you couldn't come back, and the church kept on going with the rest of us who were here. So five years later, you make your way back into the church, and of course, there's all kinds of change. There's leadership change. There's culture change. There's relationship change. So if you're in Rome and you're welcomed back into the city as the Jews were, there was bound to be conflict, and there was conflict. We know this because, uh, and especially along ethnic and, um, uh, uh, well, ethnic boundaries, Jews and Gentiles, right? Paul, his goal in the book of Romans is to bring this church, which is divided, to sort of bridge this gap, heal the wounds, mend the divides that, were, that existed, and to bring together a church that was one in Jesus, despite the cultural and ethnic differences. He was trying to make a case for, in Romans, his mission to the Gentiles, which was about God grafting into the family tree of Israel the Gentiles, which ironically enough, he uses the words natural and unnatural in chapter 11, the same words he uses in chapter 1, which we'll, we'll come back to. But you hear Paul's kind of mission statement for the book of Romans in verse 16 of chapter 1, where he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. The newsboys got a lot of play on that one. <laughs> I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God of salvation to... Everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile, right? This is what Paul's doing in the book of Romans. He's trying to bring together this divided church, which is divided along ethnic and, and, and religious lines. Um, so he's essentially saying, the gospel is for everyone, for the Jew and the Gentile. It's a power of salvation for anyone who believes. So this is Paul's mission. This is his goal in the book of Romans. Everyone tracking so far? Little excursus. Aristotle and the wisdom of Solomon. Aristotle, who you know, most likely have heard of, wrote a book called The Art of Rhetoric. And um, it was essentially a treatise on the art of persuasion. Uh, and, and of any writer in the New Testament who uses the art of persuasion and rhetoric well, it's Paul the Apostle. And the scholarship around Paul all agrees that this was a guy who was well-versed in using persuasion and rhetoric to sort of make his case. So in this book that Aristotle wrote, there is an idea called epideictic discourse. It means a mode of persuasion that either praises or blames an individual or group of people. Does anyone watch the news nightly? <laughs> you know this. You see it happen every single night. doesn't matter if you watch liberal or conservative news. Right? Where you watch someone who kind of rallies the audience against some other group of people. Right? This is how we do news in our country. Okay? It's epideictic discourse. That's what, you're, that's what you're watching. And we see Paul doing this in Genesis chapter 1. He's, you can kind of hear like the, the, the cadence getting louder and stronger where he's building this case against the Gentiles... And he's rallying a group of people, the Jewish Christians, to sort of, uh, you know, get them riled up and, and pointing fingers at this group of people, the Gentiles, right? So he's, he's, this is, this is a, a, an art of rhetoric he's using, an art of persuasion. Now, The Wisdom of Solomon is a book that was written like 90 years before Paul would have written to the Romans. And in the book, Wisdom of Solomon... Uh, the point of it was to strengthen the divide that existed between Gentiles and Jews. It was written to remind the Jewish people that God was for them, that God was on their side, that God was like uh, moving on their behalf, and was against their pagan neighbors and nations. What's fascinating about the wisdom of Solomon is there's sort of a, a logic around why the Gentiles have gone off the rails. And it's as follows. The Gentiles failed to know God. This is from the wisdom of Solomon. They failed to know God. They turned to idolatry. They engaged in immorality. And they received the due punishment for their actions. Do you recognize that? That's the exact same logic Paul uses in chapter 1 of Romans. Okay? So, they, they, they knew God from creation. They exchanged their, their knowledge of God for uh, uh, for idols, they gave themselves over to lust and passion, the degrading of their bodies, and received the due penalty for their actions. Right? That's, Paul's literally taking the logic from Wisdom of Solomon and using it in argument against the Gentiles in chapter 1 of Romans. Now, here's the million-dollar question. 
you might be sitting there thinking, Micah, you just told me that Paul's goal was to bring the church together. Why is he setting up, why is he beating down the Gentiles and trying to like rally the troops on this side? Well, uh, that's a great question. In order to get where Paul wants to go, which is unity in the church, one, one, one church in Jesus, he has to level the playing field. And he's about to do that. Uh, Richard Hayes calls it a homiletical sting operation. <laughs> Homiletics is like the art of preaching. This is just a really nerdy joke, right? The a homiletical sting operation. What's Paul doing? He's setting up Romans 1. He's riling up the Jews and, and, and telling, you know, the gen, they're all pointing their fingers at the Gentiles. He's sort of setting them up only to lower the boom on that group of people, which he does in chapter 2. If you keep reading, he says this, You, therefore, Jewish Christians, you have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you pass judgment and do the same things. He takes all of chapter 2 to level the Jewish Christians who boast about the favor of God and yet are stubborn and unrepentant, who are self-seeking and reject the truth and follow evil, who are convinced that they're supposed to be a guide for the blind and a light for those in the dark. And I'm hearing Sandy Patty. Uh, uh, an instructor to the foolish and a teacher of the children. Like He just keeps going in chapter 2. So here's the point. Chapter 1 sets up chapter 2, which sets up chapter 3. And what do you read in chapter 3? What shall we conclude then? Do we, Jews, have an advantage? No, not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to the which the law and the prophets testify, and this righteousness is given by faith in Jesus. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fallen short of, the, of God's glory, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that comes by Christ Jesus. In summary, first point, Paul's primary goal is wound up and cannot be extracted from this three-chapter progression, where he sets up the Gentiles in chapter 1, the end of which we, hear, we heard, 18 to 32, so that he can set up the, the, the Jewish Christians in chapter 2, level the playing field, and say, all are in desperate need of God's grace. All are under the power of sin. So when you yank verses 26 and 27 out of that context, you're doing a disservice to what Paul's doing in the whole argument. Are you tracking with me? That doesn't answer all the questions about does God condemn gay or does this passage condemn gay marriage and gay sex, but it's really important to hear it in context because you begin to see that Paul's not interested in answering that question in Romans 1, 26 and 27, right? Does God pre uh, uh, pre uh, prevent or, or um, does God, what's the word I'm looking for? Prohibit, thank you. Prohibit same-sex marriage or, or gay sex. That's not Paul's concern. He's doing something different. He's doing something bigger. So, let's keep going. Let's, let's dig a little deeper into verses 26 and 27. Similar to two weeks ago with 1 Corinthians 6, I want to suggest that the people and the actions that Paul is condemning are not gay people of faith and healthy sexual relationships. Rather, quite the opposite is true. So let's dive in a little deeper. Let's talk about the perversion of sex and lust and passion and uncontrolled desire connected to idolatry in Paul's argument. So it, first, it's important to know and that this link between idol worship and excessive perversion of sex was commonplace among Jewish thinkers and even a more explicit connection to perverted same-sex activity is found in Greco-Roman writers. So what Paul is, is, is tapping into is he's, he's not writing in a vacuum, is the point that I'm trying to make. And I'm, and I'm going to show you three examples of this connection between idol worship, which he levels against the Gentiles in chapter 1, and its connection to immorality of all kinds and the perversion of all kinds of things, and specifically same-sex perversion in his culture and in his day. So here's three examples. The first is from the wisdom of Solomon again. He writes, For the idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication. 
right? Connecting idols to this way of behavior. And the invention of them was the corruption of life, for whether they kill children in their initiations or celebrate secret mysteries, hold frenzied revels with strange customs, they no longer keep either their lives or their marriages pure, but they either treacherously kill one another or grieve one another by adultery, and all is a raging riot of blood and murder, theft and deceit, corruption and faithlessness, tumult, perjury, confusion over what is good, forgetfulness of favors, defiling of souls, sexual perversion, disorder of marriages. Man, this is a list, right? Adultery and debauchery. Here's the point. For the worship of idols not to be named is the beginning and cause and end of every evil. Do you see the connection there? It's like for the, for the Jewish thinker, of which Paul is one of, idol worship leads directly to all these kinds of things. Let's keep going. This is a Greek philosopher, Diochrysostom. He writes this. The man whose appetite is insatiate in such things when he finds there's no scarcity, no resistance in this field, will have contempt for the easy conquest and scorn for a woman's love as a thing too readily given, in fact, too utterly feminine, and will turn his assault against male quarters, eager to befoul uh, the youth who will soon be magistrates and judges and generals, Believing that in them, he will find a kind of pleasure difficult and hard to procure. In Greco-Roman culture, idol worship leads to this sort of immorality, but also a particular version of it, which is this same-sex perversion. Okay? One more example. This is Philo. He's a contemporary of Paul. This isn't years, this isn't, this is like Paul's neighborhood. Okay? Philo writes this. He's talking about the promised land of Israel. And he says, uh, this place, the promised land, was full of a prolific harvest of all manner of fruits. And the chief beginning of evils, as one aptly said, is goods in excess. Incapable of bearing such satiety, that's tough to say, plunging like cattle, they threw off their necks the law of nature and applied themselves to deep drinking and strong liquor, a dainty feeding and forbidden, and forbidden forms of intercourse. Not only in their mad lust for women did they violate their, the marriages of their neighbors, but also men mounted males with respect, without respect for the sex nature which the active partner shares with the passive. And so when they tried to beget children, they were discovered to be incapable of any but a sterile seed. Why do I read three long quotes? It's really important to see the connection between idol worship, which is, the, which is the subject of chapter 1, which is where our verses are found, and the like very well-worn highway for Paul and his contemporaries that idol worship leads to immorality, lust, the, the, the excessive giving of oneself, the degrading of one's body, and in particular, same-sex perversions of that. Paul's not writing in a vacuum. He's using cultural material to say what he wants to say. Second, as it relates to verses 26 and 27, who are the people actually involved in these two verses? There's a strong argument to be made that these are straight men and women. Now, this category of gay and straight is not a category that the, that the Romans would have known or would have used. That's anachronistic, that's taking something we understand and importing it back in time. But, these are arguably straight men and women, okay? Look at what it says in verse 26. Because of this, God gave them over, the women, to shameful lusts. Even there, that's a possessive pronoun, whose are they? Married men's. Even their women, the married men's women, right? Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural. Verse 26 is really, really debated. Um, but I'll offer what I find to be a very compelling argument that these are straight women who are married to men who are participating in non-procreative sex. Said differently, anal or oral. Non-procreative sex acts. Which according to Paul and his Jewish contemporaries, would have been unnatural or unintended, right? Not for its intended purpose. Um, 
More than that, for the first four centuries of Christian tradition and uh, the, the church fathers, when they're commenting on Romans 126, not a one of them understands this reference to be a reference to lesbianism, women who are gay. Rather, they would... Uh, they, were, they, they thought it meant and referenced non-procreative sex, which Paul deems unnatural. The word he uses, unnatural, is paraphysin. It means against nature. And so you might say, okay, Micah, well, unnatural, um, immoral. But actually, Paul uses the same word in chapter 11 to talk about God's action with the Jews uh, the, the, the Gentiles being grafted into the Jewish family tree as unnatural, paraphysin. So if you call what's unnatural in Romans 126 immoral, you've set yourself up to now call God's action in chapter 11 also immoral, right? You, so possibly what's happening in Romans 126, what Paul calls unnatural, is not inherently or immediately or default immoral, but just unintended, unnatural, not what it was created for in the Jewish understanding of sex. So that's Romans 1.26, women who exchange their unnatural relations for unnatural relations. Keep going in verse 27. These are not, I'm going to argue, these are not gay men whose sexual orientation uh, is towards those of the same gender, but rather these are married men whose idolatry turned immorality followed the natural progression, which we see in the wisdom of Solomon, we see in Chrysostom, we see in Philo, who exchange what's natural to them, heterosexual sex, for what is unnatural, non-procreative, homosexual sex, as an expression of lust, passion, uncontrolled desire, following its predictable course. The point I'm trying to make here is this. I don't think Paul is condemning all gay sexual relationships. He's condemning certain kinds of relationships. Ones that are driven by lust and passion, uncontrolled passion, uh, excess and non-generative, non-consensual often uh, relationships. And I would encourage you to, to, to condemn those as well. That's not what we're made for. But I don't think... Neither the larger argument Paul is making nor the specific examples he gives in 26 and 27 condemn gay Christians in monogamous marriage or gay sex in general, but certain kinds of relationships and behaviors. My final argument, I want to close with this. And if if, if you hear anything today, I hope you hear this. Some people would say, they're like, Micah, I think that Paul would, would bless gay Christians who are in covenant marriages. Like, he, he just wouldn't have that category. And, and I, don't, I, I don't actually think that's true. I don't think Paul would condone, if we were like, walked Paul from the ancient world into our world, I don't think Paul would say, oh, yeah, that's fine, but not that. And here's why. I think Paul would condemn gay relationships... Because Paul's Jewish sexual ethic was rooted and steeped in the same system of patriarchy that his comments about the role of women in the church are rooted in. Let me say that again. I think Paul would condemn gay relationships because Paul's Jewish sexual ethic is rooted and steeped in the same system of patriarchy that his comments about the role of women in church are rooted in which would have condemned gay sex based on a particular understanding of men and women, masculinity and femininity and sex. So here it is. Paul would condemn gay relationships for reasons I already reject. Paul would condemn gay relationships for reasons many of you have already rejected. Let me walk this out. The logic of this is so important, and I think it is the strongest argument to make. One, the world of the Bible is steeped in patriarchy, period. Patriarchy is a system in which men have primary power, 
and dominant roles in, of political leadership, of moral authority, of social privilege, and control of property. Put simply, patriarchy is a system where masculinity and men occupy positions of power and influence, and is a system which has a specific definition of masculinity, femininity, and their roles in sex. It wants to explain and justify this dominance by the natural differences between men and women. Specifically because men, they, are deemed to be the stronger sex, the smarter sex, the more, uh, the more fit sex to navigate the world that we live in. This system existed in Egypt, in Rome, in ancient Egypt, Rome, in ancient Greece, in ancient Babylon, in ancient Assyria, in ancient Mesopotamia, and in ancient Israel. It is the backdrop for the Bible. So if you ever find a verse that feels really patriarchal, it is. Because it's the backdrop for the Bible. You can't get away from it. Here's a few examples. Aristotle. Regarding the ancient world, he's speaking about the hierarchies that he deems necessary and important to, to sort of navigate the world. Ironically, he talks about husbands and wives, parents and children, slaves and masters, which we hear Paul repeat in 1 Timothy. He says, in each relation, there, was, there is one who rules and one who is subservient. And it will go well if those hierarchies are protected and enabled. That's Aristotle. Again, regarding gender and species. He says, specifically, as between the male and female, the former, the male, is by nature superior and ruler. The latter, female, inferior and subject. Plato pulls no punches. He says, uh, some people weren't paying close attention to like women and, and laws that govern them. And Plato says, some people, their laws don't speak to women at all. This is a problem that you would not try to regulate this secretive and crafty sex. <laughs> because of its weakness, it should never be left unregulated. You see, leaving women to do what they like is not just to lose half the battle, as it would seem. A woman's natural potential for virtue is inferior to a man's, and so she is proportionately a greater danger, perhaps even twice as great. You haven't just given a person a loaded gun, you've given a person with terrible aim a loaded gun. Philo of Alexandria, Paul's contemporary, commenting on Genesis, on the Bible. Philo says, why was the man made first, and what does it mean that the woman was made out of the rib of the man? Well, first, this had to be the case so that the woman would not be of equal dignity to the man. That's Philo, Paul's contemporary, commenting on Genesis 1. Okay? Second, she, so she wouldn't be the, of the same age because anyone who marries an older woman deserves great blame. Cougars are out. Third, come on, guys. Third, the design of God was that the husband should take care of his wife and as a part of himself, and the woman should return him with service. The man himself, delighting in his master-like authority, is to be respected for his pride, but the woman, being the rank of a servant, is to be praised because she agrees to live in communion. And finally, on commenting on 1 Timothy, chapter, uh, 1 Timothy and the woman being deceived, he says, why did the serpent accost the woman and not the man? Well, because the serpent, having formed the estimate of virtue, devised a treacherous stratagem against them. The woman was more accustomed to being deceived than the man. For the man's counsel, as well as his body, are of a masculine sort and can disentangle the notions of seduction. But the mind of the woman is more effeminate and through her softness, malakos, remember that word? Through her softness, she easily yields and is caught by the persuasions of falsehood. These are examples of contemporaries of Paul and the biblical writings. It is the backdrop for the world of the Bible, patriarchy. Second, does Paul participate in this assumption? I'm going to pick a couple of verses just to show you that I think the answer is clearly yes. Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, Wives, submit to your husbands. Submit to, uh, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do the Lord. For the husband's the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. He goes on in verse uh, chapter 6, Children, obey your parents. All right? And then in verse 5, slaves obey your earthly masters. This is Aristotle's hierarchy of the world. 
Does Paul share in the assumptions of his patriarchal world? Yes, he does. In 1 Timothy, he says women shouldn't speak in church. They should ask their husbands after they get home. They are not permitted to teach over a man. Does Paul share in his patriarchal assumptions of his world? Yes. To say anything other than that is foolish. Now, Paul goes further than most of his contemporaries. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Lay down your life for them. That's a step in the right direction, right? That's a seed planted. But here's the third question. Is Paul's patriarchy light (laughs) what the scripture is inviting us to? Or are we being invited to keep going beyond the seed Paul planted in Ephesus and Timothy by the direction of the Spirit? Paul's version of patriarchy in Ephesians and Timothy is kinder, it's softer. he, he says, you know, husbands love your wives, which in light of his culture was a huge leap forward. But is that as good as it gets? Is, is that what God intended when God created the world and said to Adam and Eve in the garden, be fruitful and multiply? Where there would be hierarchies of power where men are more valued and dominant. Loving, but I'll show my cards. No! No, absolutely not. I believe, and many of you would agree with me, that we're invited to keep going beyond what Paul has offered the church in Ephesus and Timothy towards a vision of egalitarian gender relationships. The seeds have been planted in Scripture, but the Spirit invites us to keep going. Some don't. I would argue we should, right? Now, So if I'm willing to reject or keep going from what Paul invites Timothy and the Ephesians to do related to gender roles based on my rejection of patriarchy and the assumption of the biblical world that I no longer share, we must ask the next all-important question. Is Paul's sexual ethic and apparent condemnation of gay sex rooted in the same patriarchal systems? I think the obvious answer is yes. Whatever Paul thought and whatever he offered the church in terms of sexual ethic shares the same assumptions about patriarchy. Everything Paul says in Romans 1 that he sets up for his comments about unnatural and or gay sex is predicated on shame, disgrace, and dishonor in an honor and shame culture where patriarchy and a particular understanding of masculinity reign supreme where to be male is to be dominant, powerful, aggressive, the penetrator in sex, and is honored and valued, and to be feminine or female is to be passive, submissive, subordinate, and the receiver in sex, and a lower class. You can see why Paul would say, men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Shame. In an honor-shame culture because they played the receiving, feminine, subordinate, passive role as a man, which is not looked with light. It's not something to be sought after. Conclusion. Paul's prohibition of same-gendered sexual intimacy is rooted in a system called patriarchy that I have already given myself permission to agree with and go beyond because of the Spirit's leading and the evidence of God's presence among women who are called and gifted. Give me one good reason why you shouldn't apply the same logic to gay Christians who love God, whose lives bear the fruit of God's Spirit, and who want to commit themselves to monogamous covenant marriages. To not apply the same logic... I would argue it needs to be explained, and I don't think you can. Why wouldn't you apply that logic? If you've already done it with women, and Paul's prohibition of women's roles in church is rooted in patriarchy, why wouldn't you apply the same logic to Paul's prohibitions around sexual ethics in the New Testament, which is also rooted in the same system of patriarchy? Paul would condemn gay relationships for reasons I have already rejected that you have already rejected, that you've already gone beyond because Melody led us in worship this morning and Jenna is one of our pastors. 
And so, like the Ethiopian eunuch asks Philip, what can stand in the way of me being baptized? To the gay Christian who says, what can stand in the way of me fully serving, fully giving of myself in the, in the life of the church and being married? It is my conviction that there is no scriptural reason that the church should not fully accept our gay brothers and sisters in Christ fully into the life of the church for service, for the receiving of sacrament, and the blessing of marriage. That is my opinion. Thank you for listening. I want to invite us to uh, a, few moment of si- a few moments of silence. And as we do, I will remind you that uh, this pulpit is the beginning of a conversation. And for many of you, uh, you came here this morning having never heard any of this. And maybe your head is spinning and you're like, gosh, I don't know about that. That's okay. I hope that Awaken is the kind of church where we can come together on difficult and hard conversations that really matter and have honest conversations about what does it mean to follow Jesus and what does it mean to take this seriously. If this word, this Bible, attests to the revealed word of God, Jesus, then we ought to take it seriously. And I want to. And I offered to you this morning, like, my serious wrestling with what does Paul say and what does the scripture say about our gay brothers and sisters in Christ. And the church has said pretty uniformly one thing for a really long time. And I am one of many among us who are saying, I'm not sure that that's right. Based on my experience, based on my the, the, the testimony of gay brothers and sisters whose lives bear the fruit of God's spirit and based on a reading of the text that is, I think, can stand on its own and is not a bad reading, is not lacking, but actually takes into consideration the things that we ought to when we read it. So I'm going to just stop talking now because I could keep going. And I'm going to offer a word of prayer and give you a moment in silence. And my, my invitation to you is this. To ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate and highlight what's true and right and good about anything that you've experienced in the last hour. And that that would take root in our hearts. So God... Would you, by your spirit, in the next few moments of silence, turn on the lights. If there are things that we haven't seen that you are inviting us to see, turn on the lights. If there are things that um, have been hidden that need to be unhidden, would you turn on the lights for us and lead us, guide us to what's true and right and good? Do that work now, I pray. As we close this morning, uh, Mel is going to lead us in song, and there is communion available. Uh, On my right and on my left, there is gluten-free bread. We'd invite you to get a little hand sanitizer, grab a piece of the bread, and dip it in the cup. There's red wine and white grape juice. And know that as you come, the body of Christ has been broken for you. All of you. And the blood of Christ has been shed for you. All of you. So come. If you've been here often or not in a long time or maybe never before, maybe you've tried to follow and you've failed, maybe you feel like you're not worthy of coming, maybe you have all kinds of questions that are unanswered, come. If you want it, come and receive it. It's the body and blood broken and shed for you. To the church gathered in St. Paul, the faithful, the saints among us, I'll offer you a blessing in just a moment before I do a reminder that 
this is a church connected to a tradition and a story that has said, like, we're going to keep the things that are essential as small as we possibly can. So what do we know? Christ and Christ crucified. We want to gather around a well that we believe is living water, which is the life and teachings, the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. We want to love God and love our neighbor as ourselves. Those are things that are pretty self-explanatory and that we'll like put a stake in the ground on and on other matters that are really important we'll wrestle together so there's space for us so long as we agree to treat each other with respect and dignity and when we find a brother or sister in Christ who is a, who is a, a companion of all who fear thee Psalm whatever it is <laughs> I don't remember the numbers that we say, you're my brother, you're my sister, and we can link arms and do the work of the kingdom together, even if we disagree on politics or any number of things. So as you go, what we know is love God, love your neighbor as yourself, and we'll see you next week. Yeah? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The church said together, amen. Grace and peace, friends. Go love the world. Find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awaken Community. Or on Twitter, Awaken Community. See you next time.